Hi, friends. I'm Renee. And I'm Anna. And you're listening to Fangirl Happy Hour. getting two regular episodes in a row because life poked me in the butt a little bit more. But luckily, I've come to the very end of my horrific adulting business and I can now go forth into 2019 with only somewhat tedious adulting business. Adulting is very hard, Renee, so I really do understand what you're saying. Yep, yep. Today, we're talking about what we've been reading, discussing She-Ra, the new show from our fave, Noelle Stevenson, and A Dash of Trouble, a middle grade novel by Anna Mariano. What's been on your reading list the last few weeks? And most importantly, what medium have your books been in? I love that this is now a question. I have been reading quite a lot and I have five books to talk about briefly. Three of them were audiobooks, if you believe it. I am listening to one and a half a week. Mind you that I only commute three days a week and I only listen to audiobooks when I'm commuting. So that's how many hours I'm spending (laughs) on commutes. They are Undead Girl Gang by Lily Anderson, which is about a girl whose best friend died. Everybody thinks that she committed suicide, but the main character doesn't believe that. She knew her, her best friend wasn't feeling anything that would have led her to commit suicide. They used to do spells and pretend they were witches. And so this girl decides to do a huge spell and see if it works and bring her friend back to life. And she does it, along with two other teenage girls who also died recently, supposedly suicide. And they together find out who their killer was. And it's super great. The main character is um, a Latino and she's fat unapologetically so. It's fun and somewhat dark towards the ending, especially when the killer is unveiled. I also listened to Equal Rights by Terry Pratchett. It had been a while since I read or listened to a Terry Pratchett novel, and this one is the first in the Witches miniseries that introduces Granny Weatherwax. And everybody has always talked so much about her and how wonderful a character she is. And I really, really enjoyed this. I was laughing as I was walking, which is one of the parts of listening to audiobooks while walking to work has been a learning curve because I have found myself both laughing out loud and crying and walking at the same time. It's like, it's so weird. (laughs) It's like people must think, and I'm like, what is this girl doing? Girl, I'm 42 years old, Anna. Grow up. I also read as an ebook The Gilded Wolves by Roshani Chokshi, and I really, really loved it. It's a heist novel, YA fantasy, with a group of six characters who all live together. It's kind of like a found family, and they are such great characters. And one of them is white, the other are all people of color from the different parts of the world. 
And a couple of them are also queer. One of them is bisexual. And I think there is a polyamory relationship in the works here. I will be delighted to see in the sequel. I also listened to The Parker Inheritance by Varian Jensen, which is one of the ALA book winners of the year. Have you ever read The Westing Game? Yes, I have, because KJ loves that book. Did you, lo- did you love it too? I liked it a whole lot. I think I read it a little bit too old to like have a deep abiding love for it, but I really did enjoy it. It was really neat. So this book pays homage to, at the same time that it actually is in conversation with the Westing game, the characters actually use it to help them solve the puzzle because it's a puzzle book. They need to find this Packard inheritance. But behind it, there's a whole lot of history of African-Americans in the South. The book is on voices. The two kids are Black. And as they find out about this money that has been donated to their town, they need to figure out who are the people involved in this history that relates to the Parker inheritance. As you can imagine, it's not an easy story to read. There's a lot of really sad things that happened in the past in that town. But there's also a lot about identity and family and love and forgiveness that I really love to read. I also read Farthing by Joe Walton. It's an alternate history novel that we will be talking about soon in one of our vault episodes. So I'll just leave it for later. Tell me about what you've been reading, Renee. Well, first up, I'm going to torture everybody because the first book that I'm going to mention is one that nobody else can read until September. I have no words because you have been torturing me about this book for weeks now. It is Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Murr. It comes out from Tor September 10th. It's space fantasy with necromancers, but it's also a locked room mystery. Oh my god, seriously? Yeah, and I loved it. In my review, I was like, okay, so here are some tags that might apply to this book. Uh, Major character death, lots of dead characters, murder death kill. Wow, that's a lot of dead people. It's a book about necromancers. It's also just deeply, deeply funny. I laughed so much when I was reading this book, even though what was happening was extremely dark. The premise is that Gideon the Ninth lives on this planet and grew up with a childhood nemesis, Harrow Hark, who is a necromancer. The Emperor needs more necromancers, so he is holding a challenge to create like more advanced necromancers to help fight his war. Gideon has been trying to escape the planet for years, but has been unable to do so. When the Emperor makes this call, Harrowhark is like, here, I need you to go with me to be my second. And if you do this and help me become an, like the one of the Emperor's necromancers, I'll let you go free. And so they make a pact and they go off to this very creepy castle where they have to solve a bunch of mysteries. Oh my god. I love this book. I'm so upset it's not out until September. Here's my position on this book. If you're oh, if you can, if you're okay with a lot of character death, well, it is about necromancers. Then I would say pre-order this book. I'm all in. Request your library buy a copy of this book. Where did this author come from? Like I know that obviously they had been writing short fiction because they have a pretty expensive short fiction bibliography. But otherwise, I was just like, where the hell did you come from? You're amazing. And now I feel really bad because nobody can read this book right now. I've talked about it and nobody can read it. I'm so sorry. I mean, I'm I'm only a little sorry. 
but I'm not sorry to talk about it because I loved it. Like it's one of my favorite books so far this year. It's gonna blow your fucking socks off. Oh my god, I cannot wait! The next book I read was Miniatures by John Scalzi. This is the Subterranean Press short fiction collection that he released a few years ago. John Scalzi's really good at the intersection of real life aliens and humanity and how they interact. The stories that I liked the most from it were those stories, alien and humans interacting in mundane situations. I have the hard copy because I am a John Scalzi completionist. However, the hard copy is very small. It's very pretty, but it is also $40 if you're going to get the subpress copy. I think for just casual Scalzi readers, the ebook would be fine. The next book I read was Captive Prince by C.S. Picat. It's about Damianos, who is betrayed by his brother and sent to an enemy prince as a sex slave and his trials at the court there. Captive Prince is the first in the trilogy, followed by Princess Gambit and King's Rising. However, I am still of the opinion that Captive Prince and Princess Gambit should have been one book. I will die on this hill. I did actually start Princess Gambit immediately. I went from the end of Captive Prince, put it down, opened Princess Gambit, and read three chapters. And I would highly recommend that as a method. I have not finished Princess Gambit yet because... I got another book that I wanted to read called Fence. Fence is also by C.S. Picat and Joanna the Mad. It is a graphic novel about young fencers. It is a comic about fencing. And it is amazing. This comic. I love it. I love it. It is so good and painful. Oh. I've read Fence Volume 1 and 2. There's two out right now. Claire recommended this on her YouTube channel. And I was like, hmm, really? Okay, well, let me give this a try. I really like the art. Holy moly. It's great. I loved it. Highly recommend. Then I also read Any Old Diamonds by KJ Charles, which is her new book that came out January 30th. And I read it on January 30th. Any Old Diamonds is about a young lord who is trying to get revenge on his father by hiring some jewel thieves to steal a gift that his father had made for his stepmother. Along the way, he and one of the jewel thieves realize that he really likes being told what to do in the bedroom, and it's delightful. I got to the end going, I'm not really sure how she's going to fix Holy shit, what's happening? Does it have a happy ending? Yes, it does. It is so, so good. I would highly recommend it. If you've never read a KJ Charles novel before, if you like jewel heists, if you like plucky lady private detectives... I don't know how KJ Charles just keeps pumping out these amazing novels, but guess what? It happened again. Finally, one of the last books I read was in audio, and it was Good and Mad by Rebecca Traster. This is a nonfiction book about women's anger in the wake of the 2016 presidential election. Also, all the ways that women and their anger are discredited or mocked or derided as hysterical. I went into it a little dubious because we can talk about women's anger, but I wasn't sure whether it would be an intersectional look at anger and how different women are treated when they're angry. But luckily, it does like deal with race. She's very much aware of the racial component of women's anger. She does discuss it. It's a very depressing book in a lot of ways, but it's also sort of inspiring because it just shows that social change is often led by women just being pissed. If you're looking for a book about anger because you're feeling angry, you may find this book instructive or at least comforting because you won't feel like you're alone. I read a lot of great books 
I was looking back over my list. I was like, wow, I don't really have a least favorite book. I mean, I guess if I do, it's John, it's John Scalzi's short fiction collection. That's not the short fiction collection's fault. That's just me being picky with short fiction. I didn't read anything in January that I did not like. Yeah, do you know, that was true for me, too. I did quit a couple of books because I was not in the mood for them. Maybe we are just getting better at picking what to read. Yeah, I tried to read Jade City by Fonda Lee. I was just like, this is so dense. I'm tired. I put it down for now. We had a great reading month. I'm excited. I'm excited for February now. There are so many books coming out. I already missed a couple of books from January that I should have read. Although I'm trying this year not to go with, oh, I should do this. I have to do this. I'm just going with the flow. But also there's part of me that feels that sense of guilt and shame for, oh, I didn't read that book that was out in January. We are not doing that to ourselves anymore. We can read it anytime. Yes, exactly. Trouble, a.k.a. Love Sugar Magic by Anna Miriano. It's about Leonora and her family who own a beloved local bakery. Leo wants nothing more than to take part in the preparations for Dia de los Muertos this year with her parents and four sisters, but her mom is having none of it. And being shady enough and going around Leo's back just makes Leo want to sneak into the bakery and spy and find out what's really happening. And what she discovers is that the women in her family are brujas and that they use magic in their baking. Leo, frustrated at being left out, steals the family spellbook in order to practice magic on her own. And as you can imagine, things go really, really wrong. So, Renee, what did you think of the book? I recommended it to you. It was cute, right? The book was very, very, very cute. I thought it was lovely. My favorite part of it, of course, I think, was the relationship between Leo and her mom and her sisters. This book is very much about the bonds between women and family. It was really great. And she also had a best friend. And her relationship with her was also super great. It was kind of like what starts the whole thing of her doing spells to have to help her best friend uh, making amends with a boy that was maybe bullying her at some point. And just things just go escalate from there, really. My friend Anna liked this book, but she's always very critical of dead moms in fiction. So now whenever I'm reading a book, if there's a dead mom, I'm like, oh, a dead mom. Now that she's pointed it out to me, I can't unsee it. So many books have dead moms. And here, I understand why it's part of the story. Even though this is a book about magic and ghosts and people's connection to the spirit world, it's also incredibly rooted in the real world. So the dead mom in this case is Caroline, Leo's best friend who died of cancer. Caroline is really struggling. It's part of the story. But also, once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. Oh, a dead mom. True. That was literally the only thing where I was like, oh. But otherwise, this book is lovely. It really reminded me of a couple of other books in the movie. That if you liked those, then A Dash of Trouble would be really up your alley. The movie would be Coco, which is also about the Diodolos Muertos and about, you know, connecting with your ancestors and the power of family, uh, the importance of family. And that is a very good connecting 
point between Coco and Adesha Trouble. And in terms of families, there have brujas in them. It also reminded me about Labyrinth Lost and Bruja Born by Zoreda Cordova. They also focus on a family with sisters who are all brujas. So if you liked those, you like a dash of trouble. If you like a dash of trouble, you'll probably like those too. And I really liked that in a dash of trouble, things started really cutesy, but kind of like it a little bit dark in a way. But the family and the sisters, they talk to each other and they help each other to solve the problems. And then it's a, it's a major turning point in the book, right? When she is just like, she's just doing things for herself. She's afraid of what her mom is going to say and her sisters. But when the time comes and she really needs help, that's who she turns to. And all her sisters are very different and have super distinct personalities, but are also like really supportive. And it's really interesting, too, because there are some of them that really don't care about being brujas or doing magic at all. And one of the things about in the novel is that they only really learn about it when they are 15 years old. And Leonora is really young still. It's not of that age yet. So keeping secrets in the family also turns and bites them in the ass in a way. So there's also this whole conversation about secrets and whether you should keep them or not. One thing I found both realistic and heartbreaking Leo is the youngest of all her sisters, and because she was the youngest kid in the family, she didn't spend a whole lot of time with her grandmother. Because of that, she doesn't have Spanish. She can recognize some words, but ultimately, she's just not good at Spanish. That's a great nod to like what happens to culture when you're like between two different cultures. It's one of the things that drives her to eventually spy and steal the family spell book, like, oh, maybe mom doesn't want me to help because I don't know Spanish. She doesn't have that in common with her family. So it sort of drives her feeling inferior and wanting to close the gap between her and her sisters. And I just found it both very realistic, but also extremely heartbreaking. But then she also learns a little bit more Spanish throughout the process because most of the recipes in the book are in Spanish and she has to translate them. And her best friend, Caroline, uh, helps her with that. Caroline has learned Spanish over the last year. It becomes like a way for them to bond together as well. I don't know. I've just found it very lovely and bittersweet is a good word, I think, to describe it. Once her spells go wrong in a way that the police have to be involved, everything is a little bit off the rails. And I love how the book dealt with it and the way that Leo went to her sisters and all her sisters were like, well, let's try to solve this problem. And they help her, but what I really liked was, and I guess this is a little bit of a spoiler, but not too much, is that although they do help her, they don't actually solve her problem for her. She solves her problem for herself. With their help and guidance. One of my favorite parts of this book was the emotional intelligence that runs through it. When Leo's a jerk and like knocks stuff off the table, her mom like comes to her afterwards and she's like, well, we know you didn't mean to, but that's not the best way to get attention if you're upset. Like, through the whole thing, like all these conversations that she has, they have this thread of more communication is always better. And a lot of her problems come because she's just not communicating. Exactly. And it really does model this really good form of communication and ways to engage with people that don't make them feel bad. It was just very charming. It was a very charming book. It was. And I loved the ending, too, in the last scene between Leonora and her mom. It's a really 
wonderful conversation that they had there and funny. This is a great, great book, especially if you need something light and quick to read that's not super heavy. It does get a little bit dark at the end, but it, all, everything works out. It has a happy ending. So if you're looking for something that's sweet and kind, I highly recommend this one. I super agree with that. Five space bees. Five space bees. Yo. Shira is a 2018 reboot of the 1985 filmation cartoon about Adora, raised serving the Horde. When Adora is suddenly awakened to her powers as Shira and sees the chaos the Horde has been inflicting on Etheria, she joins the rebellion in order to reunite the princesses of power and bring Peace Black to the planet. This was produced by Noelle Stevenson, who I love. Because she was the executive producer on it, I knew going in, I'm going to love this. And I did. It's wonderful. It starts off as really cute and sometimes with very simplistic storylines and then goes in a roller coaster like it goes up and up and up and up with things being super nice and a learning curve for Shira and then things get really fucking dark about halfway through this and especially towards the end and it's like there's torture and really awful things happening to our beloved characters because at that point I, I I loved everybody, basically. So it was kind of like a really interesting way of setting it up at first with this really like comical, cutesy feel. And then surprise, motherfuckers. Animation isn't always taken seriously. But just because something is cute doesn't mean it's not dark as hell. And I think this really drives home that point. Shira is about war. Shira is about oppression. It is about betrayal. There are several storylines in here that hurt me. Ow. I'm not actually sure what else to say, but ow, my feelings. Like, for example? So the whole premise is that Adora is going around as Shira to help recruit princesses to the rebellion. Obviously, Adora first befriends Glimmer and Bo. Glimmer is the princess of Brightmoon. They form like this little team. And they're like the core stable friendship of the series. But as they add princesses, things get more complicated. For example, Bo and Perfuma strike up a friendship which makes Glimmer jealous. And the show really handles jealousy in an amazing way. I'm like, why? Why can't we get more of this? But specifically, they recruit a princess called Entrapta, who does like robotics work, tech stuff. And Entrapta joins them and at some at one point in the series they go to rescue some characters who have been kidnapped and tortured and in the chaos most of the characters assume that entrapta is killed except she's not and they leave her behind because they leave her behind in the enemy territory the enemies mind whammy her and convince her that she has been left purposefully starts to work with them on their tech stuff so Entrapta was on the rebellion side. She gets left. She believes the enemy about why she was left and effectively joins up with them. Although who knows what her motivations are here. Mostly the tech, I think. But it also creates this very interesting discussion of the ends justify the means. Entrapta really wants to understand the first one's tech. And by being on the enemy side, she's learned more than in like a very short amount of time than she has with all her time tinkering with it on the, the rebellion side. Like it's very self-serving, but it also creates this really interesting morally gray character 
Yeah, that's really interesting because in Chapter in the original Shearer, she was a villain all along. So in this one, she starts off as part of the hero's crew. And I don't think it's solely the fact that she was left behind that motivates her into joining the enemies. I think she lives in a very amoral, gray area. She doesn't care very much. She is very self-serving, like you said, which was an interesting choice instead of just having her be the villain. So there was a whole arc for her. In a way, I don't think there would be a comeback from Entrapta. The way that I think there will be a comeback for other villains in the show, which is very interesting because of how she started. I think villains who started as villains will probably come to the hero side before Entrapta does. But yeah, you could just say I had a lot of feelings about Entrapta because I loved her. I don't know the original series. This is the only Shira I've seen. So I didn't know anything about Entrapta except when she was introduced and I really liked her character. I was on an emotional roller coaster. I'm just like, what are you doing? Go inside with the enemy. I remember Shira very much, but I think I only really watched He-Man. I think when Shira came along, I was a little, I was already a little bit older. So after watching the new Shira, I went to YouTube to watch. Oh no, I actually on Netflix. It's on Netflix too. So I went and I watched a couple of episodes of the original Shira. And the first thing that I have to say is when I was watching the new Shira, for example, Bo as a character. So he's a guy, but he's not your typically masculine action dude. He even his clothes have like a heart at the center of his chest. And I thought, oh, this is so progressive. And I went back and I saw the original Shearer. And his new costume is exactly like the old costume. And the character was exactly the same. Although he was a white man and the new bow is a man of color. So like the old Shearer was already progressive 30 years ago, which I thought was really cool. My favorite part about the new Shira is that the old Shira spun out of He-Man. Well, from what I've read, Shira was his sister? His twin sister, if I'm not mistaken, who was sent to a different world. In this one, He-Man is not referenced at all. At all, no. Actually, the first episode of the old Shira is all about He-Man going into that world to find his sister. He comes across Adora as the leader of the Horde. So that is not referenced in the new Shira. And I, I actually wonder if at some point she will find out where she's from and that will be another dimension and where he man lies. Another of the relationships that I had a lot of feelings about, probably you'll be on this boat with me as well, uh, Adora and Katra. Oh my God. Holy shit. <laughs> was so good first of all Katra looks amazing she's so stylish I love her clothes and her demeanor and her funny lies although she's a villain um on definitely on the dark side at the moment but their relationship is amazing right do you think it's a queer relationship do you think like there's an allusion to it but do you think this is where they're going or are you happy with it's just friends the optics of the princess prom episode Yes, I know. Uh, there was a tweet going around, which uh, I wish I could remember who tweeted it. I guess maybe it was a comedy show. The comic was making a joke about being in love with your best friend and how all the women around in the room were like looking at each other nervously. That is the vibe that I get from Adora and Catra's relationship. But it's complicated 
by the fact that they're on opposing sides. Adora can't handle the violence that the Horde is truly engaging in on Etheria, and Catra just doesn't care. I guess it goes back to Shadow Weaver and how Shadow Weaver taught Adora to be invested in the work that she did, to care about the work that she did, to care about the effort she gave. And to Catra, she was just abusive as hell. So that manifests in Adora learning about the true nature of the Horde and being appalled because she cares about the effort she puts in. Shadow Weaver trained her to care and be invested in the effort that she puts into something. And she didn't do the same thing for Katra. So Katra just doesn't give a shit. Katra sees power as something that will make her feel better. Yeah, will make her life better. Worse than what the Horde is doing is how she feels that Adora betrayed their friendship. Because Adora just left her and they grew up together as almost forced siblings, I would say, brought up by Shadow Weaver. And whenever Shadow Weaver wanted to punish Adora, it was by torturing physically and mentally Katra. So it was like really fucked up. But at the same time, we also got a little bit of Shadow Weaver's own backstory, which was also good. This show was just very, very rich and there was a lot of depth to it. And you know what vibe I got from it? Mm. Airbender. Absolutely. I even have a note saying bow equals soccer. Yeah, and not just that. Shira herself, when Light Hope is explaining to Adora about Shira, she talks about how the line was broken. And I'm just like, Am I Aang? Is that you? <laughs> The princesses have these rune stones, which give them magic, and a lot of them have elemental magic, which the last airbender vibe from the show was interesting. And I don't know enough about the original to know if that's how the original works. I don't. I don't remember. Like who's influencing who here? The original was also about princesses of power. Avatar: The Last Airbender is an American show. People like say it's anime, but it's American. The creators of that show watch a lot of animation, so I'm just curious about like what's informing what. No, in that scenario, then Katra is definitely Zuko, right? <laughs> yes. I don't know. There were so many great characters. I loved Scorpion. The fact she's also a princess, but obviously has been corrupted by the Horde. And then you have how about? Captain Hawk. Seahawk. The cutest character of all time. We're so great. Him and Bo together. I was like... You're talking about how Bo was like not the traditional masculine character. If we get a traditional masculine character, it comes in the form of Seahawk, who is also the comic relief, which is not standard. Yeah. But he's also very camp. Yes, that's exactly right. The traditional masculine character in the show is that particular character and they have no problems expressing their feelings for each other and how much they admire each other which is just so wonderful they became insta friends i love the show so much it was so wonderful i love the optics of it the colors the amount of pink and purple and swift wing when the horse comes back and he starts just talking the way that he talks <laughs> This is amazing. It has all the elements that I loved about Nimona in there too. So I can I can really see Noelle Stevenson as a creator. I'd also know that the show owes a lot to, to the original run. Um, the colors are actually the same, which is like so wonderful. 
how many times can I say wonderful in segment? I don't know. We will find out. Oh, oh, I love the relationship between Glimmer and Homam. Such a wonderful relationship there. I'm not sure what I expected going into this at all, but I'm in love with the show. And guess what? We get more of it in April. Yeah, I know. So soon. Very soon for me, because I only watched this recently. Everybody else watched it, I think, last year. Yeah, but it came out in the second half of the year, really. So they probably started production soon after. Well, there's another DreamWorks show that I really liked called Voltron that danced around the queer issue and then utterly fucked it up. So DreamWorks is also this show. So I'm very nervous to get like attached to any queerness that might come because I don't think the creators of these shows, even if they do have the courage, will get the sign off to make it explicit, even if it's not like quote unquote explicit. Surely Noelle Simpson came into this already with an idea in her mind and knowing her background and her other work. Well, DreamWorks let her. So I'm just really concerned. Yes, there's a lot of great relationships here, but I am on the side of not getting invested in it like on a canonical level because the last DreamWorks show I got invested in on a canonical level punched me in the goddamn face. So hard pass on that. I will enjoy the fanfic and the show can do what it, what it, whatever it does. I'm more confident because Noelle Stevenson is Noelle Stevenson, but also she's one creator against a, a giant company who gets to control its own property. If anybody has any Adora Catra fanfic that would like me to read, please send it along because I need it. One billion space bees? Okay, final score for Shira is one billion and five space bees. It's wonderful. Time for some obsessions. Anna, here we go. What have you got for me this week? Oh my god. So I know that Renee doesn't know anything about this, so it's going to be my delight to share with her, as well as the rest of you, who for some reason were not around the internet on the week of the 4th of February. I'll start with a little bit of back history. Have you heard of a thriller called The Woman in the Window by A.J. Finn? I have not. came out last year in the U.S. and it was a huge success. There was a lot of money thrown at it, as you can imagine. Um, I actually at first thought it was a book by a woman because a lot of women write these types of thriller. They are kind of like domestic thrillers with women as the main characters, and they find that the, the men in their lives are terrible, basically. So it's a thing that has become the place of women authors, and I have seen quite a few men assume names that could be interpreted as any gender. This book came out, I didn't read it at the time when I found out that it was by a man, and I'm so sorry, I, I'm biased like that when it comes to thrillers, uh, but I just saw the book go up and up and up, major bestseller, and here in the UK it's out now, and it's just plastered everywhere, Renee, it's like on tube stations and train stations, and it's just everywhere this book is it's like Richard and Judy book club which is a major thing in the UK it's a lot of money behind it instant bestseller uh, apparently the author's advance was like in the region of six figures million dollars and is sold to 20 different countries and it's going to be a movie soon with Amy Adams 
So this is the background for this. Q Monday in an article on the New Yorker, and it's an expose of AJ Finn, who, as it turns out, is a very infamous editor called Dan Mullery, who started his career in publishing by lying that he has degrees that he, that he did not have, that was immediately hired to be an editor, senior editor for William Morrow in New York for a salary of $200,000 based on nothing at all apart from his looks and charms. And then the stories begin to roll out of that. For example, he used to lie about his mom having died of cancer. His mom is still alive. That his dad was dead. His dad is still alive. That he had cancer, terminal cancer. He actually wrote emails from people as though it was his brother writing to people about him dying of cancer in hospital. He skipped work all the time. He used to pee plastic cups and leave that at his boss as though he's marking territory. And even despite all of that, despite all of this knowledge, he never lost his job in publishing. And when the time came for publishers to bid on his novel, the bid was going fast and fast and furious. And then a lot of when it was revealed that he was Dan Mallory, a lot of people dropped off of the auction. Apart from his actual boss, who ended up buying the book for a million or two million dollars or something like this. It's like it's this expose is super long and it has so many details. And it actually goes into the actual work that shows that it could probably have been plagiarized, that he used to drop the works that he was editing and never completed them, and all the lies and deceit. And I read that, and it made me so fucking angry. And it's been four days. I am still Googling everything about it, because only a white man, a mediocre white man, could get away with all this shit for so long and be rewarded for it. I just, I can't. Meanwhile, women in publishing and people of color in publishing have trouble in getting the basis of salaries or even a salary at all. I was so angry. You have to read it. It's an amazing piece of work. It's just, it's fascinating the way they escalate. And I just, I, I couldn't believe it. And he's not even that hot. Everybody was like, oh, but he was so beautiful and so charming. I Google it and it's like, are you kidding me? Like, on top of being enablers, you all have bad taste. <laughs> oh, Anna, tell us how you really feel. So anyway, now this guy is infamous. And I, I just Googled it right now, right this moment, Renee. And there's an article published one hour ago. Second A.J. Finn novel on way despite Dan Mallory's scandal, says publisher. Nothing means anything anymore. Like, I fucking hate publishing. Listen, listen, do you know what this second book is about? A female thriller writer and an interviewer who learns of a dark past. Is this not revenge? a revenge book because of this expose in New Yorker? I don't know. Yes, it is. So what are you obsessed about? I'm going to line it up after that serious trip into the dark side of publishing. Last year, early on, my mom said, hey, did you send a thank you card for that thing? And I'm like, a thank you card? No. She's like, you need to send a thank you card. Send a thank you card for that thing. And I'm like, okay, I will. I didn't send a thank you card for the thing. 
So fast forward a few weeks, I sent somebody a book in the mail. And like a week later, I get a thank you card back. I'm having a really shitty day. It was a shitty ass day. And I check the mail and I get the mail out and there was this card there with my name on it. And I'm like, oh, a card. Well, it's not a bill. So that's good. Let me open it. And sometimes I get tricked because spammers have learned how to like create envelopes where the hand, the address looks like sort of handwritten. I can't believe we're using computers and AI for this kind of petty ass shit, but whatever. I'll like open that envelope and it's a thank you card and there's some stickers. And they were like, thank you for this thing. It was so kind of you. And I'm like, this is the greatest feeling I've ever had. And from that moment on, I'm like, thank you cards. Thank you cards are the greatest. And I've created a problem in my office because I'm running out of space. Oh, no. I keep buying thank you cards. I'll be in the store and I'm like, oh, that's cute. I want that. Or I'll buy just like regular blank note cards that are cute and make them into thank you cards. And it's a problem. I have too many cards. So the problem is I go into Target and I have to buy them because they're so cute. And it's escalating because now I'm just like looking at cute note cards that are just blank cards. They're not necessarily thank you cards and going, oh my God, that's cute. I need it. I will be on Amazon just browsing thank you cards for like an hour. And then I'll end up on Etsy just browsing note cards for a couple hours. And I'm just like, I need to stop. I need to stop. I don't, I have so many cards. Listen. If I didn't buy any more thank you cards or blank note cards for the next year, I would not run out of cards. So you need to thank more people. More people need to do nice things to me. I don't just send thank you cards for nothing. Maybe I should start. (laughs) Maybe that's the answer. I really like cards. I like sending cards. There's a quote that gets attributed to a lot of different people like Maya Angelou. I think I've actually sent it attributed to Barack Obama as well. A lot of people would just share quotes online, like a quote with a picture of a person, and then the people go, oh, well, that person said that quote. Not always. Check your sources. So the quote itself is, they may forget what you said, but they will never forget how you made them feel. Oh, that's a great quote. I know. I really like it. Like, it's become sort of my operational mode in politics, and I've now, like, moved it over to my personal life. I'm just like, if somebody does something kind to me, I send them a thank you note. And it's actually surprising how much it changes things just on a vibe level. And then sort of at the same time this was happening and I was like, oh, note cards, cute thank you cards. These are cute. I also read across another piece of advice about like mindfulness. Instead of saying you're sorry for something, like I'm sorry I was late, say thank you for having patience with me. There was traffic. Or I'm sorry I forgot to respond to your email. Instead, say, hey, thanks for the reminder about your last message. I'm going to get to it. So instead of apologizing, instead put gratitude out instead of an apology. Obviously, you still want to apologize when you fuck up. But like you don't always need to be apologizing because it changes the dynamic of the interaction you're having. Thank you, cards. That's what's happening this week. That's because I bought some this week. <laughs> shouldn't have, but I did. Thanks for sharing. Fangirl Happy Hour is supported by all of our patrons. We're so incredibly grateful for everyone who supports us, especially our supporters at our $5 pledge level. Thanks to KJ, Hedwig, Carrie, Amanda, Eliza M, and Jen. To Trends in Dancing, Dierbla, Margot, Philip, and Amy, thank you. 
Thanks to Claire, Brandy, Elisa, and Lara. And last, but definitely not least, Jocelyn, Mark, and Anne-Marie. Thank you so much to all of our patrons for helping us make our show. And thank you very much for listening to this episode of Fangirl Happy Hour. We would love to hear your thoughts or your recommendations. You can message us on Twitter at FangirlPod or email us at FangirlHappyHour at gmail.com. Our podcasting team includes Ira, our show artist, and our transcription queen, Susan. Their work is available at FangirlHappyHour.com. Our team also includes you, listening to this right now, all our Patreon supporters and newsletter subscribers. Don't forget to drink water, contact your reps, and eat the rich. Throw the whole billionaire into the pot. They want to be called people of means, Renee. People of means. So eat the people of means. And also remember, you are not alone. Thanks for listening to our show, Space Bees. See you next episode. Oh, yeah? Really? What? <laughs> I'm, so, I'm getting so old and creaky. Hi, Zach. Hello. I'm sorry, you're interrupting. What's going on, babe? Did you forget why you're interrupting? <laughs> God damn it, Katra. So hot. <laughs> I feel so wrong. <laughs>